as you came in today, hopefully you were handed this booklet, Grace for the City, which has been more than 20 years in the making. It refers to some significant prophetic revelation that we received many years ago, announcing three signs of God's judgment over this city. The context of all of that is that though God's judgment rests upon this city, there is yet still more grace for the city of London. And I want to address this today. And I think I'm going to handle it like this. The nine o'clock service, consider that as part one. And I will do a quick recap and then pick up the 11 o'clock service, the second part of the message. There's too much to fit in in, in one message. So go to the nine o'clock service, part one. It'll be on the web by tomorrow and then part two of this message. Let me read from the scripture, which helps us understand the grace of God being revealed in the gospel against a background of God's wrath. Wrath isn't God getting mad, losing his temper. It is his righteous reaction to sin. Let's read Romans 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the good news. God's grace is only needed when it's needed. What are we saved from? We're saved from God's judgment concerning our sins. And Paul speaks about that. He says, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Present tense, it's happening now. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, un all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. I want you to get the picture here. The Apostle Paul is on his way to preach the gospel in Rome. And he does a little bit of an analysis of Roman society. You go on from here, you see Roman society was to all intents and purposes, handed over by God to their own rebellion, justly and righteously, because they knew the truth and 
chose to suppress it. And we all know the truth. The evidence of God is everywhere. Even science acknowledges today that the universe has not always existed. The universe had a beginning and it is so logical and reasonable to understand that the God who lives outside of the universe, outside of the realm of space and time, the eternal one always existing, the necessary being has brought this world and universe into existence. That is as sound philosophically and as rationally as you could ever be. And those who disagree with that are rooted not in rational belief, but in their own moral rejection and rebellion against God. We will not have anybody rule us. Judgment day. I wonder what, you, what comes to your mind when I say judgment day. And if you're thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger, then maybe you go to the movies too much. But for me, Judgment Day brings to mind two rather alarming experiences from my life. One was from primary school. And the man in question was a teacher, a very authoritarian, carrying a cane in his hand teacher, a teacher who obviously existed before social services were operating very effectively. And I remember now three of the most rebellious of our class with me in the center, <laughs> bending his cane over us using all the force of intimidation that authority can bring down on you. Who threw the prune? Who? Through the prune. Who threw the prune? I could take it no longer. I was either going to have to say something or just laugh because it was quite comical. And so I said, I did, sir. <laughs> to this day, I can't remember whether I actually threw the prune, but Freud has some examples of how people bury things in their subconscious. Judgment Day. Then fast forward to some of my early years in Kensington Temple and I found myself in court, my first time in court. No, not on my account. I went to speak for somebody else, just in case you were worrying. <laughs> when I was called forward to give my testimony of the character of a KT member who had an alcohol problem and was up before the judge on an alcohol offense for which he was guilty, and not for the first time. This man was going down. But I came to speak on his behalf. And the judge, as I stood up, he said, no, sit down, and I sat down in the wrong chair. <laughs> I sat down in the chair reserved for the accused. How often we as Christians sit down in the chair of the accused when God has written over our lives, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Judgment day. It was judgment day for him. And as I spoke up for him, 
I found some words which on the one hand acknowledged the wrong that he had done and also confessed our failure as a church not to curb his excesses just a little bit better, but pleading the judge to give him one more chance. It happened. He didn't go to prison. A friend spoke for him, and we have a friend far greater in the presence of God, whoever lives to make intercession for us. I say all of these things to know that even though I will speak considerably about the judgments that are upon us and upon our city, it is in the context of God's grace and goodness, for there is still yet more grace for London. Can I have a strong amen? Amen. Well, the story begins around about 1991, when there were at that time a number of very negative prophetic publications. One in particular was always pouring out invective against God's people and telling us we're all doomed. Every event that had a negative connotation was God punishing us. And every promise of a blessing was immediately revoked because God was punishing us and God's anger was unabated And I thought, this is crazy gloom and doom. So I decided to do something radical. I decided to talk to God about it. And you know what? He talked back. I can confidently say that. Because what he showed me in a vision, not an open vision, I describe it here for you in moderate language, but it was so clear. I saw an angel tall and high, standing high above London, carrying a bowl, a big bowl. And I looked at it and I thought, they're right. I've just read Revelation. These are bowls of God's wrath. Head for the hills, we're doomed. But as I looked closely, this angel was holding this bowl and kind of looking around. And as the angel was looking around, the, 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 the substance that was in this bowl began to swirl around. It was thick. It was viscous. It was glorious. And some of it spilled over the edge and fell down in slow motion and touched different parts of the city. And wherever this liquid glory fell, chains fell off people. People's lives were turned around. They began to sing and to dance and to celebrate This is the gospel of Christ. Imagine if that angel just poured out that whole bowl upon the city. God granted in this day of your grace. I waited seven years. And seven years later, the 2nd of October 1998, we gathered 4,000 of us in Wembley Arena, the old arena, to deliver part two of the message, which was this angel looking around was seeing seven other angels all around, and these were angels of God's judgment, each carrying a judgment relating to specific sins of the city. It was so awful. 
And I begged God to stop. And then he showed me three signs of this judgment. Signs. A fire is coming to the city. It shall strike in the city of London, in the heart of the corrupt financial institutions. I wouldn't personally be surprised, as I quote what I said in 1998, for not one of the financial buildings themselves. God will send that fire to show the fire of God's judgment has come. There will be a judgment concerning the water of the city. It will affect our water supply and sewage. The stench of the sin of the city has reached his nostrils. There will be a major incident relating to the bridge, Hammersmith Bridge, and the consequent traffic disaster. God says, this city traffics in sin, and the bridge to me is broken. We trace it out here in the booklet. We've published it in the past, brought it all together in this booklet. Every one of those signs was fulfilled. Fulfilled in reverse order. First, the Hammersmith Bridge. And by the way, when these signs were announced, we asked God, soften them, please, no loss of life. And he did. Then the sewage, with the incredible flash flooding that poured thousands of tons of sewage in the River Thames. And then... The final sign which took some time to come about was the sign in the city where the College of Arms, which holds the, heretical, uh, the heraldic symbols of the nation, caught fire. And in that part of London's tremendous history, Marco did some research for me and tried to delve into the significance of these signs and discovered that that building, which caught fire, has a long history of ducking and dodging fires. The building that housed this College of Arms in 1660 was burned in the great fire of London. The reference is deliberate, I think, in the spirit. And we're told that at that time, they managed to preserve all the heraldic records, supposedly across the Thames to Westminster. And that building was rebuilt in 1770, and it is one of the only buildings remaining from that era. Read the account of it here from the website of the College of Arms uh, uh, um, itself. It's where the coats of arms, pedigrees of English, Welsh, and Northern Irish, Commonwealth families, their descendants, it goes way, way back, way before the fire of London, way back in history. And it, it is so significant of our heritage as a nation. We could dig deeper. Not, today is not for everything. One of the things that I am praying about is how that so many satanic and demonic symbols are retained in the symbology of our 
of our age. But more importantly to me, it speaks of the history which belongs to us as a nation which has so much of its roots and influence in the Christian gospel. And this fire is warning us today that our heritage, especially our Christian heritage, is in danger. And we need to stand up. Not that Christian heritage equals a Christian nation or a born-again nation. No, no, no. But the values that have influenced us and brought us to this place are under threat because the nation has turned increasingly its back upon God. And so all of this happened and I ask myself, who has heard this warning and what does it mean for us? Now, here am I instinctively reacting against doom and gloom prophecies, right? More than 20 years ago. And then I come up with one of my own. And I couldn't understand it. How could God say that in the bowl is his grace and I've still yet more grace, but then give me three signs that God's saying this city is under judgment? What does that mean? Are we yet to see a major catastrophe that will finally prove to everybody that God is going to deal with the stench of the city? Is, is that what it's about? And by the way, you need God in this because you can't look at every disaster. Let's take 7-7. Seven, 7-7 seven. Seven, seven was an abomination. Now, are we going to say that the people who died in 7-7 were particularly sinful? That's why God was judging them? No, you can't do that. You can't go from natural disaster and interpret it that God is judging individual people or situations. You need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. On one occasion, they came to Jesus and they were talking about a tower that fell and killed people in Galilee. And Jesus said, you think they were more wicked than the rest, that they were judged like this? You can't go from a disaster and say, that is the judgment of God. And a lot of people do that, and it's easy. It doesn't take much imagination if you're that way inclined. But these signs were not necessarily serious, severe incidences. They were serious enough but they were not necessarily tragic. So what makes them a sign? God chose these events and said they're going to happen and this is what it means in advance of them happening. So a sign here is not a supernatural sign or a supernatural wonder. They may yet come. I believe they will. But when they do, the level of our responsibility will go up a notch. The greater the sign, the more supernatural the sign, the greater our answerability. And it seems that the further we go down, the stronger the signs will be and greater will be the judgment in the end. So that these are easily dismissed and we would not have noticed them apart from an odd prayer meeting or two if God had not shown us in advance. And so we say, God, what are you telling us? And I did not understand it 
didn't understand it, didn't understand why, what all this meant. And I talked to a number of reliable elder statesmen, prophetic people, and I went to the home of this elderly prophetic man and I said, I don't understand this. He said, it's very simple. You've forgotten Romans 1. He turned me to this passage. The wrath of God is being revealed, present tense. Now, this is where we're heading now. There is a future judgment, the day of reckoning which will come, and that judgment will not be mixed with grace or mercy because it will be the final judgment. Every judgment before that is mixed with mercy. And it's God saying, I don't want you to perish. I want you to come to repentance. And this is the great call, the great invitation of the Holy Spirit. Come to him afresh in repentance. Separate from sin. Focus on him and let God be God in the midst and you will see what he will do. Pour out his grace. Saturate you with grace. Your life, your family. Wherever you go, you will be a bearer of good news and grace. But in advance of that judgment, and this is what Paul saw concerning Rome, and indeed all human society. When a society, whether it's a family, an individual, or a whole society, when a society knows the truth and the gospel has spread across these British Isles, by faithful servants of God for hundreds of years. The gospel and its values are built into the very foundation of Britain. But when a nation sees fit to reject that for its humanism and all the other isms, and you know we name them, we name many isms from this pulpit, and when that becomes a settled rebellion, God says, okay, you want it? Take it. You read the verses that follow verse 18. Three times it says, God handed them over. God handed them over. And what we see in British society now are the stages of God handing us over to the false beliefs and rebellious desires of our hearts. When I say our hearts, I'm not dragging you and me into it. We should know better. I'm talking about our society. And I'm getting excited at this point because I believe this is exactly what motiv motivated the Apostle Paul. I, if I took his pulse, it'd be racing high. And let me put it in a kind of more dramatic way of what would have been going on in his heart and mind. I'm so excited to come to Rome. Rome is a sin city. Rome is the center of God's judgment. There's so much sin around. There's got to be even more grace for where sin abounds. Grace superabounds. I can't wait to come and preach the gospel of good news because it's the only thing that will come against God's anger for this city and that's the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses from every sin. And therefore I understood that all the details concerning specific signs and their significance 
You take this booklet, you meditate on some of this stuff, God will show you stuff that we haven't mentioned here, deeper stuff, the significance of these things. But it's all pointing us in one direction. Our society is moving further away from God, and I predict, you've heard me on it, I've recorded some of it here, the 2020s are going to see a culmination of a post-Christian, not to say anti-Christian flourishing in our nation, and so many things are set to take place, and they are very likely to take place, and only one thing can help us is that if we get back to Jesus, and to get back to what his mission is, Paul is excited. He is the great apostle of grace. You can't preach grace better than Paul preached. But it begins with the background of judgment. We've been singing in some of our songs and hymns today about how Jesus paid it all for us. Do you know that is, that is the heart of biblical theology? Theology is knowledge of God. It's not a bad word, it's a good word. It means knowing Him. Not just about Him, but knowing Him. Theology is right. Do not drop your interest in truth, in scriptural revelation, and in theo theological understanding. I couldn't even say the word just then. <laughs> because the whole of the Bible is a love story about God who created everything and made us in his image. And that image of God in us is many things, it's many things, and philosophers and theologians and scholars still are trying to plumb the depths of what it means to be in the image of God. But it means above all things one thing. We are made for a relationship with him. We can know him and he can live in us. He can reflect his glory in our lives. Humanity is the highest point of God's creation. We haven't evolved into some higher form of animal being. We are created originally in the image of God with all the dignity and glory that it has and all the potential for relationship. But of course, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We turned each one to his own way like sheep. We've gone astray. And he could have left us. He could have said, okay, you had your chance. I gave you free will and you blew it. Big time, blew it. So that's it. Now you just go and have the consequences. But God's love was greater than that. He said, I don't want anybody to perish. I'm going to give them a chance of reconciliation. And for that, he paid a price. God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So whoever believes enters in a relationship with Christ and then is in a position, not of condemnation, but of blessing and grace. Grace. That's the message of grace. Unfortunately today, some people are preaching grace in the wrong way. It's not a cover-up for sin. For the grace of God has appeared to all humanity, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live 
righteous and sober lives. Rich, rich, rich in fruits, rich in good works. We don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we are saved. Grace is not a cover-up for sin. It's the very thing that leads us out of our darkness and bondage and fears and, and habits and, and into incrementally, it doesn't happen overnight, bit by bit, the image of Christ is recreated and shaped in us. And that's what church is all about. And that's what our mission is all about, to be in the right place at the right time, ready, ready for the new move of God. So, you know, we are in the last throes Coming up, 2019, that's it next year, am I right? 2020, the year after that. Just a year or two away from the decade of the 2020s. And the 2020 vision, which I have, you know, put here. I made some videos earlier, and I think you saw them over the weeks. Put it in here again to encourage you to get ready. Get ready. God wants to move. And, and when, when the pressures in society mount and people lose faith and people deny the faith and people fall away and people opt for false religion or no religion, we need to be there full of the glory of God demonstrating who he really is. Let God be God and let God be true and every man a liar. His will counts, not our will. But I also include what we are beginning to believe and see. God is getting ready to do a new thing. A new move of God. And this will not be like other moves of God. In fact, it will be almost as if I could say, forget the former things. Behold, says the Lord, I do a new thing. And this will bring so much of the good stuff that we've seen in recent decades. Moves of God, outpourings of the Holy Spirit, restoration of the people of God. It will take us beyond that so that we will be men and women of faith receiving His grace because we humble ourselves in His presence, separate from sin and embrace Christ fully. Be ready for that new move of God. And I'm a little frustrated. I'm a little, come on, Lord, let's hurry up here. But I have got to confess today that I really do know that God's timetable is better than mine. It's coming. I will lead you into the 2020s but not long after that. Therefore I ask you, take whatever God wants, still yet wants to do in me and through me while this season lasts. And this is where he wants us to go, to be ready. How are we ready? Let me just read a little bit 
You can strike up if you want to. You, you're here at the right moment. Thank you very much. In the book of James, verse 6, it says, But he gives us more grace. That's mind-boggling. More grace? Surely grace is grace is grace. Yes, it is. But if he says we can have more, I want more. Do you want more grace? More grace for your life. More grace for your family. More grace for the issues that oppress you. Grace doesn't mean to say you can have a problem-free life. In Paul's case, he said, my grace is sufficient for you through your troubles. So it's not about escaping troubles. It's about knowing more of Him. Grace, to grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord. God's favor on your life. When God's favor on your life, like Joseph, you could be in prison, still be on top. I'm not asking you to go and test that one out, by the way. <laughs> wow, I want more grace. But He gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, humility here is the opposite of the arrogant rebellion that I spoke about. Uh, and the truth is, that arrogant rebellion belonging to that old nature is still here. It sticks around. We've got to deal with it. Isn't that right? But I believe if we as Kensington Temple people of God, this 20-year prophecy is coming into a new phase of seriousness and outworking but it's in the context of His grace. There is still yet more grace. 